Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or NixonFoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations about rapprochement to the People's Republic of China beginning in 1971 and culminating with the historic trip in February 1972. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of NixonTapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be back, especially to join you here in Yorba Linda. Absolutely. Um, just to kind of start off, much of the tapes deal with secrecy and diplomacy during the Nixon presidency. Um, why did President Nixon value secrecy in his own diplomatic initiatives? Uh, the Vietnam War especially, and big power diplomacy with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China? Well, I mean, the idea of secrecy, is the subject of it is just such a, a big subject because it cuts across um, almost every major initiative of the, the Nixon administration. And so much has been written about uh, um, President Nixon and, and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger's emphasis on secrecy. Some say they were obsessed with secrecy. Uh, so it's, it's such a, a big subject. Uh, and I think, you know, I try to look at it in terms of how they saw the issue at the time. Um, we can look back now and see, were, were they obsessed? Uh, were, were they too secretive? You know, did they set new precedents in terms of presidential power? But, you know, they, at the time, uh, you know, had an idea of the direction they were headed, but didn't ultimately know where they were going to go and when they were going to get there. And so I look at it, I look at it, this is the example I use when I teach in my classes. You know, if you're trying to establish some kind of a relationship um, with China or uh, talk to the North Vietnamese, I mean, normally you could bring in uh, an ambassador uh, into the White House uh, in Washington, or you knew who your equivalent was in that nation's foreign ministry. But when you're talking to Chinese or North Vietnamese, or a nation that we don't have diplomatic relations with. I mean, remember that uh, American passports then were invalid for travel to mainland China. Uh, so there was no analog in those nations. And so things had to be done secretly. They had to be done through personal diplomacy and missions. They had to be done through, through third parties with whom we had a relationship with and uh, with whom the Chinese or the North Vietnamese had a relationship with. So anytime you're doing something unconventional, I think the means that are needed are somewhat unconventional. Let's listen to the first audio of April 28th, 1971. Here's President Nixon talking with uh, Dr. Kissinger about who he wants to appoint and direct uh, secret negotiations with the Chinese. Let me just preface uh, the tape a little bit. Uh, we're going to play a few tapes uh, throughout this broadcast regarding um, Nixon um, and the trip to China. Um, but this is uh, Nixon and Dr. Kissinger on, in April of 1971. Set up a secret negotiation. But the way I would start the telegram was I said, the president has considered he would like to arrange a visit to the Believe that he, 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 he would like to come to uh, He thinks, however, that the best way to arrange that is 
transfer of his or her equipment must be arranged at the highest level. The agenda, modalities, etc., should be arranged uh, by Dr. Kissinger and whatever. Before this audio, uh, Kissinger somewhat humorously says, um, quote, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I happen to be the only one who knows of the negotiations. <clears throat> Why does, um, what, what are President, what is President Nixon here thinking in terms of a appointing a special envoy? And how does he ultimately appoint uh, Dr. Kissinger for those secret negotiations with uh, Premier Cho Enlai? Well, this is a clip from a, a fascinating series of conversations. I think both Nixon and Kissinger realize that they're beginning to plan what will be the most interesting, fascinating, creative uh, part of their foreign policy during the presidency. And this is one clip from a, a longer conversation when they're running through a series of possible names uh, in terms of could this person be the envoy, could this person, this person could, this person couldn't, the kinds of qualities that you want. in a You know, it needs to be someone sufficiently senior, to, um, to, to, to sort of honor the Chinese who are receiving you at a very high level, but it also needs to be somebody who knows the president's thinking very well and is close to the president, can, do, can go in and out of places like uh, Pakistan and, and Peking quietly. Uh, so in this case, they were sort of ruling out New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller for the job, and they, they ran through a, a number of other names and uh, after striking each one down, um, Kissinger was the only was the last man standing. You know, they each wrote their memoirs about this, Nixon and Kissinger, but these tapes present a much broader, a bigger conversation about the process. And during that conversation, they really don't reveal the exact qualities that they want or don't want in someone. I mean, they kind of hint at it, uh, but I think Kissinger was able to find a space where he was the last one truly eligible. And I think he had more of the desired qualities uh, than anyone else. So I think he was just simply a natural choice. What do you think these tapes um, say about the diplomatic process that the conventional national security documents do not? Well, I mean, here we're, we're, we just listened to a conversation about how uh, President Nixon's first envoy to China would be a secret envoy would be chosen. There, there's no documents that talk about this conversation or the process to be chosen. Uh, you know, if you sit in the research room here at the library, you can find records of the first meetings, the first contact, the messages that are sent through the various channels to the Chinese, such as the Pakistanis, and then the direct contact with the Chinese. And so once things get going, I think that's where the, the more traditional records pick up. But in terms of how we get to that point, uh, that, ha that happens in a conversation, uh, not on a paper record. And that's what makes these tapes unique. Let's listen to uh, the next audio. This takes place on the same day. Um, this is also in April, uh, on April 28, 1971. And uh, Nixon and Kissinger are talking about uh, some of the uh, possible um, outcomes of a summit. Um, if they choose to go with if they choose to go with a summit, what are the what's the what are the possible um, trade-offs uh, of doing that? So I'm going to play the clip right now. What we are praying for basically is a Chinese summit. That's my point to be. That is the big play. Now, that's only but that's half of it. The other part of the play is to do something about this war. 
That's the other half of it. And with that, I think these guys can fit people where they needed bees, and they said it'll be not that. They need bees now. It's got to affect the north. And the one advantage of a public emissary. Well, let me say, before I get there, say the war has to be pretty well settled. But I guess, we, I guess it's up to say, don't we can't come there until we have some idea that there must be, the, the fact must be known in the United States that the war is settled. I can't come to China before that. They're so scared of the Russians that they are a hell of a lot better off having you visit next May or April and keeping it hanging and daring the Russians to attack them with a presidential visit in the office. That's what I think they want. I do not believe they want to not. Nixon says something here that's quite interesting. Um, the war has to be well settled before uh, we can go to China, in summary. Um, was this a serious consideration to solve the war in Vietnam um, before going to China in 1972? Well, certainly the war wasn't over uh, at the time that uh, Nixon went to China in February of 1972. You know, I, I think when I reread and, well, now re-listen to this tape, this tape is like a lot of tapes, and it requires uh, interpretation, I think sometimes educated speculation, because it's not clear exactly what he means. Um, I think the next sentence in the quote is the one that, that helps me to understand it. The fact must be known in the United States that the war is settled. I can't come to China before that. So my guess here is that what Nixon means is that the American people cannot see an American president both being friendly to the enemy, communists, while still fighting communists in Vietnam. And so I think that that's what he means. The public perception of the trip would be wrong if he were shaking hands with the communists in China when the American government's been telling the American people for 20 years that the Chinese are helping the North Vietnamese kill Americans and kill our ally South Vietnam uh, in the Viet Vietnam War. Uh, so the war was not settled, although, of course, by 72, the vast majority of the troops were withdrawn. Uh, but that would be my guess of what Nixon means by that. How do you reconcile um, those two sort of um, those opposite political forces? Um, how was Nixon able to, I guess, go to China um, shake hands with Cho An Lai, who were supporting the Vietnamese. Um, how did he reconcile those two, uh, the, the, that, that public perception? I think Nixon, as much as he knew about foreign policy already when he uh, came into the presidency in January 20, 1969, I think he learned quite a bit further about the nature of communism while in office. And in particular, he learned that there were some communists that you could work with who were more pragmatic, and there were some that were more hardline that you could not work with. And so I think in his mind, uh, for him, the, the Chinese, represented by Premier Zhou Enlai, were the kinds of Chinese uh, communists that you could work with, because they obviously were at least as motivated as the Americans to make this new relationship work for them, for their interests too, and not just ours. I mean, there's a whole other side of the story here, the Chinese side, that we, we don't really know yet because their records are not open in their archives. We can't study them like we study our records. So I think that's the way he, he, he reasoned with it, is the, the, at least the Chinese want to talk and they seem serious. The North Vietnamese kept saying they want to talk in Paris and during secret missions, but we aren't getting anywhere. So I think Nixon saw, perceived the opportunity to move forward with China 
and maybe not the way he originally calculated his timetable to be, and he, he sees that opportunity. In this tape, um, what is Kissinger implying when he says the Chinese are so scared of the Russians? Well, this is a subject that, you know, again, take some educated guess. Uh, what I think he's referring to is, is a subject that we are, are still learning about today, I mean, more than 50 years later, that the Chinese and the Russians were, were pretty close to a full-blown war uh, in the early to mid-1960s. And I don't refer here to, um, you know, there's been some recent documents declassified that show uh, evidence of some shots being fired over the Usuri River. I'm not talking about that. I think there's, there's a, there was a much broader conflict that, that uh, stirred up, um, certainly beginning in the 1960s and moving forward in that decade. And so I think relations were, were considerably worse uh, between the Chinese and the Russians even than, than Kissinger and Nixon suspected, and they already knew more than the general public did about the breakdown in relations by, say, the 1969. So I suspect that's, that's what he was referring to, is uh, that uh, there were, tensions were still very high between those nations. Was there any consideration at all to do a Moscow summit first? to get the attention of the Chinese, sort of what, um, this is kind of counterfactual, but so, um, sort of what uh, the opposite of what actually happened. Oh, I think that the, the goal was always to go to Moscow first. Uh, I think all the way through until, uh, well, Kissinger makes his first secret trip to China uh, in uh, the early summer of 1971. And I think up to that point, you know, you can see in um, uh, my uh, book on the Nixon tapes, 1971-72, uh, I think the momentum is, is always to go to Moscow first, to get a SALT agreement signed, and to make progress with that relationship first. It was only because um, of a variety of factors, including the fact the Soviets kept stalling on uh, issuing an invitation to Nixon to come, come to Moscow, on setting a timetable and achieving progress toward a summit, uh, that the the two priorities uh, reversed. Uh, the Chinese were willing to move now. They seemed more serious. They were willing to commit. And so I think the priorities ultimately reversed. I think the goal was always to go to Moscow first, but they went to China first because the Chinese were the ones who made the move. On one of these tapes, um, Soviet ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Brennan, teases Kissinger about um, reaching out to the uh, People's Republic of China. I mean, had they known that the United States was um, think at least thinking about this initiative, or at least had it on their mind, why why wouldn't they have moved faster? You sure would think that the Soviet intelligence would have been uh, monitoring the situation pretty closely, but at least as far as we can tell, it caught them by surprise. Either they were not aware or not fully aware of uh, American moves toward China, or they were not fully aware of uh, Chinese responses and perhaps how eager the Chinese were to move toward a summit. Uh, whatever the case, uh, the Soviets really dropped the ball. I mean, I think if they had committed to a summit first, it would have happened. Uh, but it was really theirs to lose, and they lost it. Which brings us to the secret channel, um, possibly this, uh, the reason why they were caught so, by, by uh, so much surprise of the Soviets was that Nixon had a secret channel going um, through Romania first um, and then through uh, 
through Pakistan. Let's listen to a tape from May 27, 1971. This is President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger talking about their secret to ch channel to China with uh, Pakistani President uh, Yahya Khan. Now on the China that we're buying exactly around the time you Yes, because the Chinese will come back, they should be back with They'll be back within 10 minutes to two weeks. think so? Yahya delivered the message. He delivered the message on May 19th. It took five days. I've now got a good channel, but I told his ambassador to send it by parts. Didn't want it on a Pakistan wire. I've now set up a wire to Karachi for our ambassador, which goes only through Morris. Nobody knows it, and it's got a special code which only Haig knows, so even Mora can't read it. And, uh, which only, and so now they can deliver messages in 24 hours. It took five days to get there, then it took, then Yahya was in Lahore, so he didn't deliver it till the 19th. So they've only had it for seven days. And my guess is that they'll reply the first week of June. You think they'll reply in Almost certainly, yes. You can add a lot of things in there about a presidential visit and all that. We offered them a presidential visit. We told them I'd be authorized to arrange the visit of a public emissary. Uh, if it was thought useful, it's hedged a little bit. And in addition to a presidential visit. Yeah, in addition to a presidential visit. And for them, Mr. President, after all, they are revolutionaries, but you think of this peasant, former peasant Mao, the Great March, and then the President of the United States comes to Peking at the end of his life. That's, well, that's why it's smart. This conversation is very revealing. Um, it's a very rare record in the annals of diplomatic history. Nixon and Kissinger are very sensitive that the message gets in the right hands. Uh, Kissinger remarks that the message is coded, quote, so even Moore can read it. Uh, this is referring to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Thomas Moore. Um, can you tell us why they wouldn't even tell the government's top military official? Well, I think this whole exchange is, is fascinating. Before I get to your, your question, I mean, nowadays, I guess somebody had sent a text message. <laughs> you want to get things, but it take five days to get there. This is in May, and they might re they they might uh, reply by the beginning of next month. Um, I mean, it's just uh, shocking how difficult it was to to set all this up. Uh, I think one of the you know one of the things they they learned the most from the Pakistani channel was how long it took, and having direct contact with the Chinese, which is what they went to after the Pakistani channel was uh, something you had much better control over. Uh, other people didn't see the messages. It didn't take this many days to get there. You could send someone to China or meet them someplace and hand them a message. Uh, so while this was uh, a fascinating thing they were setting up, I think what they quickly learned was how it didn't work very well. But, you know, um, you can see the, the secrecy needed. Um, you know, for Kissinger to set up these, these communication channels, he needed a lot of other people, uh, their, their help including, as you mentioned, uh, the military and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Admiral Moore. Uh, so I think the, the main purpose was just to keep the, uh, the, the messages confidential because they didn't know how this was going to go. They didn't know the result. Um, it'd, be, it'd be bad enough uh, to spread around uh, word around, around town that you're beginning a secret initiative about China, but it'd be even more humiliating if, if you were told no and that got out. Uh, so I think something like this, where uh, I think, yeah, you know, Kissinger and Nixon have been criticized for being too secretive in, in a, at other times. 
But I think in, in a situation like this, in this moment, you, you probably can't have too much secrecy. Nixon and Kissinger like to talk about, um, they like to, to study the cultures of different countries. It was a part of their job. Um, but they also like to study the individuals that they, um, that they dealt with. We did a previous podcast on Kissinger, the negotiator, um, with James Sabeni, as head of Harvard Negotiation Project. And they, he talked about how Kissinger liked to zero in on the personalities. Uh, Nixon, in, in a similar way, with his, uh, um, you, you can see it through his notes, you can see it through his, uh, through his book, Leaders, um, that he liked studying the uh, personalities of people that he dealt with uh, throughout his political career. Um, what, is, what is Kissinger talking about here when he talks about the Chinese being revolutionaries and sort of Mao's background as a, as a peasant um, before, um, you know, before his ascendancy and, and the mistakes he's made throughout his political career and ultimately uh, greeting the president and sort of a reversal greeting the president of the United States in China. What, what, is he, what is he thinking about and sort of assessing here? Well, when, when I uh, teach this material to my students, it's, it seems um, impossible that, I mean, you, you have Mao and Zhou and some of the, the old um, founders of the Chinese Communist Party that go back to the 1920s, and how they, they, you know, they controlled the rural areas, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists controlled the cities, and it was a divided country from the 1920s until 1949 when the communists took over and, and declared the founding of the PRC on October 1st. And so for 20 years, these, these communist leaders effectively wandered in the wilderness, I mean, literally and figuratively. And whether it be the Long March, where I think 100,000 of them were killed and sniped at along the way, they, they were primarily farmers and they were peasants uh, and and really kind of lifelong revolutionaries when you study Mao's little red book and the philosophy and his speeches as chairman uh, I mean very much you know using revolutionary language through the course of the Great Leap Forward in the late 50s uh, the uh, uh, the Cultural Revolution beginning in 1966. Um, you know, con consistently used revolutionary language, and that's what he wanted to be thought of uh, as, as kind of lifelong revolutionaries. And as I, you know, it seems so odd that beginning in the early 70s, uh, these lifelong revolutionaries would meet not just with the enemy, but the great enemy, uh, the great capitalist enemy, the United States. And so one, it's a fascinating question to think about. Is it impossible that he would have done that, or was that the last act of revolution for a lifelong revolutionary? Is right at the very end, when you think you've got him figured out, he does one more revolutionary thing by changing global affairs in the world and having the most populous nation make peace with the, the, the most powerful nation in the world. And so that's the way I see it. Let's listen to the excerpts from the next conversation of July 1st, 1971, between President Nixon, Dr. Kissinger, and Kissinger's military assistant, uh, Alexander Haig. If the Russians do not give us a summit, we could go in December or yeah. late November or summer yeah. to China. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think, Al? Yes, sir. And we could tell the Russians, and Anatole can go home and say, you crazy sons of bitches, yeah. you screwed it up. Right. And uh, actually, technically, if we don't get it by the sevens, it doesn't make any difference what they decide. Yeah. Al can't get it to me fast enough. Yeah. The other point, of course, is this. If we 
we don't get it there in the seventh. Uh, on the other hand, you've got to figure, you figure that the Russians then, if you go to China, there is a chance that they'll blow the No, they won't blow the Russians. They won't blow that. But they'll blow salt. And uh, the risk we done with the well, if they blow salt, they could blow salt, they could uh, they could jack up the Middle East, and they could start yeah. raising hell in the Caribbean. That's correct. Now, of course, we can go hard right. They won't do Berlin because they want to get along with the Germans. Yeah. That's right. And in fact, our major problem in Berlin now is we're coming up with, I know we'll never get credit for it, but we're coming up with a really superb agreement on that. Yeah. Which is actually an improvement. Yeah, they still sing it. Yeah, but you know, they are, the Russians are making so many concessions now that it's getting tough to. Uh, I've got, uh, I've, I've got Russia held until July 20th. Yeah. What's fascinating about this discussion, and this is on July 1st, 1971, the day um, I believe that uh, that uh, Kissinger embarked um, on that trip. I think you were right when you said earlier. Um, that they, that uh, although this diplomatic initiative was planned, they they were somewhat surprised and didn't know exactly what to expect in certain circumstances. Uh, can you touch on that a little bit? Well, sure. This is uh, Kissinger's last last huddle before leaving to go on his his famed secret visit to Peking and negotiate with the Chinese directly. And it's this is July first, nineteen seventy one. Uh, just two weeks later. Uh, national television, Nixon announced that he would be the first president to visit China uh, in a date to be determined, uh, and uh, did about six months later. So obviously the Chinese, within just two weeks of this conversation, uh, came to agreement, and we were moving forward with a, with a summit. While, the, you know, it's during this, this period, between this conversation and July 15th, when the priorities reverse, I think in this conversation, they're still, you know, Nixon and Kissinger are still thinking there could be a Soviet summit first, but, you know, they're, they're going to mess this up, uh, they said about Ambassador Dobrynin, and they plan to rub it in his face a little bit. Um, so I think this is right when the priorities uh, began to reverse, that I mentioned too before, and so uh, this is, that's exactly what's, uh, what is uh, about to happen. When you listen to this audio, you hear Nixon and Kissinger making calculation of how the Soviet leaders are going to react to a summit with China. Quote, they could blow up the Berlin deal, they could blow up salt, um, or wreak havoc somewhere else in the world. Um, what does this conversation um, tell about their strategic calculus? Well, the question is, when the Russians figure out that we're going to see the Chinese first, what happens? You know, how many, how many problems can they cause for the United States or for the world? And you know, there's allusions to a number of things here. There's a there's a Berlin agreement that's going to be signed in a couple months. Could they ruin that? Well, as they say in the conversation, the Russians were kind of boxed in on that because they they wanted to have a uh, uh, an agreement with uh, uh, with the West Germans um, that kind of settles some border issues and some other issues that have been around since World War then World War II with Germany and with Eastern Europe. Uh, the other, the allusion to the Caribbean is, you know, are they going to cause more problems, kind of like we saw in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, and uh, Cienfuegos, which Nixon and Kissinger dealt with just the year before this conversation. So the question is, um, okay, we're going to beat the Soviets, and we're going to see the Chinese, but at what cost? And so they're trying to guess what that cost might be. Why does Nixon say, can we still sink it regarding the 
um, regarding the Berlin Agreement. I'm not sure what he means by that. Uh, obviously, the Americans wanted a Berlin Agreement, but um, they Nixon and Kissinger weren't thrilled with the Berlin Agreement. It was an agreement that was being driven primarily by the Soviets and by uh, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt, and it gave the Soviets a much larger say, I think, in European affairs than uh, the Americans were comfortable with. It was part of a broader call for of the Soviets to have a European Security Conference, uh, at which the United States would have either little or no role. Uh, it was really all of this was a, a greater plan uh, and strategy for the Soviets to keep Americans either out of Europe or at least confined in NATO or to reduce the role of NATO in, in European affairs. And so I think that's what he meant by that is I think it was in American interest to get a Berlin agreement, uh, but they, the Americans were a little uncomfortable with the amount the Soviets seemed to be calling the shots with the Europeans. Let's listen to the next conversation of October 1st, uh, 1971. Um, this is Nixon to Kissinger. This is before the second trip uh, to China in October 72, uh, or 71, dubbed Polo II, where Kissinger um, negotiates a, um, a sort of the, the groundwork for the summit uh, with the Chinese the following year. interesting conversation. Um, something in particular that Nixon says is that the Chinese have to become convinced that a Japan, that a Japan and going further, a non-communist Asia without the United States is potentially more dangerous than an, a than an Asia with the United States. Essentially, Asia going non-communist is less scary for China than the United States being in their backyard. Could you explain Nixon's thinking here a little bit? Well, it's complicated, and, and he um, doesn't fully explain it. But obviously, the United States is, a, is in the, the process of reordering uh, relationships in, in Asia, in particular between the United States and China. And yet we have longstanding relationships, treaty commitments with uh, non-communist Asia, in particular Japan, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Thailand, um, of course, Vietnam, um, Singapore, and elsewhere. Um, and so the question is, you know, how, there's a number of questions. How do, how do we make 
those nations, our allies, comfortable with what we're doing with China? And how do we make China comfortable with our continued relationships with those nations? And so it was a balancing act between, uh, I think the Americans assumed that what the Chinese would want is Americans out of Vietnam and Americans out of Asia. And that turned out not to be true. Uh, Chinese, the Chinese appear to be more concerned about the Russians, again, don't forget, are not just a European power, but a major Asian power and seaport uh, with a long border with China, uh, that the Chinese are more concerned about Russians in Asia than they were about Americans. And there must have been some concern that if the Americans all leave, uh, that that void will be filled perhaps by Russia, which the Chinese desired less, perhaps with Japan, a, a rearmed Japan. And Chinese had very recent memory, uh, many Chinese did, of World War II, Japanese occupation. And Chinese, really no nation in, in East Asia wanted a rearmed Japan. So in the end, you know, who was going to fill the void left by an American departure? And so Nixon and Kissinger were able to negotiate this so the Americans could still maintain a significant presence in Asia, particularly in Okinawa, uh, which was kind of a supply base for uh, operations in Vietnam, uh, Vietnam itself. But the Chinese did not appear to be very uh, eager to get Americans out of either Asia or out of uh, uh, out of Europe, because the Chinese understood that having Americans around also put pressure on Russia, which was the Chinese rival. Uh, so it was a, you can see it's a very complicated, uh, layered, you know, balancing act that uh, Nixon and Kissinger were, uh, were playing um, in order to sort of balance the, the interests of all sides. And so this was uh, going on right in the middle of this conversation. And it, you could even argue that even today, uh, decades later, is, is still something that the Americans are, are trying to get right as we plan to pull more of our resources out of Okinawa. So it's been a constant battle between supporting our allies and, and also maintaining good ties with the Chinese. Nixon says a couple things here, too. He says, we'll take the Taiwan thing. Uh, we know what has to happen. Uh, Korea will work out that out in an oral way. Um, what does this conversation reveal about how America conducted diplomacy in this period? Um, he's saying um, that we'll work out things orally with the Taiwan, uh, with Taiwan and uh, and South Korea, um, but he's also um, saying uh, we're also saying eventually in the Shanghai communique that uh, we're going to um, leave that sphere of influence uh, to the to the um, that we're not going to try to dominate in in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, how do you reconcile these two? these two different points, and what does this conversation reveal, reveal about that? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about this. Uh, first, I, I don't know anyone who's gone into the archives of all these nations to figure out exactly what they were told, what they were promised, and how, how what they were told privately compared to what actually happened. I think there there is a, um, a reason to believe that some of them were not fully briefed because they some of them, I think, were probably awfully scared of what the United States was proposing to do with China. And I think my, my second reaction about the broader strategy used here or proposed by Nixon and Kissinger, uh, I think back to the Nixon Doctrine. And, and one of the, the key ideas, uh, principles of the Nixon Doctrine, is that the United States will maintain treaty commitments, but in the future will, uh, will uh, implement such future such treaties on a more realistic basis. And so I think, you know, similar to how I think Nixon liked Europeans, playing a broader role in their own defense in Europe. 
I think Nixon liked the idea of, of uh, Asians playing a, a greater role in their own security. But the question was, who would do that? Uh, there's still a divided Korea. Uh, no nation in Europe like the, uh, in, in Asia liked the idea of Japan playing a bigger role, as I said. Taiwan had a very awkward status because it was considered a renegade province by the PRC. There's still a major war going on in Vietnam. Uh, so, you know, I think as much as Nixon, I think, hoped to apply the, the basic principle of the Nixon doctrine, I, I think this is one, one case in one part of the world where that really wasn't going to be possible, that the, the continued American presence was really the, the one that was the, the least undesirable by all the nations in the area. Nixon states at the end of this clip, um, I would state very, very firmly that the United States is a Pacific power and an Asian power, and we are going to maintain a presence there. How did he come to this conclusion? Obama, uh, President Obama said uh, the United States is a Pacific power in 2009. Um, this is, uh, you know, 40 years earlier than that. Um, uh, we had just, we were, you know, fighting the Cold War. We had, you know, we had um, um, millions of dollars in, uh, or billions of dollars in Europe. Um, how did Nixon come to this conclusion that the United States is an Asian power and a Pacific power? I think it was a, a long process. I think um, Nixon might have done the most early on to reorient the United States from being traditionally an Atlantic power with close relationships with Atlantic allies to one in which um, uh, the uh, the real action in the world was in the Pacific. You know, I would go back even further and say that, you know, historians should take a closer look at Lyndon Johnson. I think Johnson was really the one who got this started, but it was Nixon the one was the one who did the most about it. You know, Johnson was someone from Texas, and born in Texas in 1908. He, that was about as far west as you could go. I mean, California was a state, but the rest of his neighbors, as it became West Texas, were all territories. And so that was, he, Johnson, I think, considered himself to be someone from the West. He only flew east once during his presidency. He went to Europe once to attend uh, Conrad Adenauer's funeral. Otherwise, he made all his trips to, the, to uh, the Pacific part of the world. And so I think Johnson, as a Texan, started to reorient that. And then I think then you have the Californians, Nixon first, and then Reagan, which really solidified the fact that we were, the focus of our energies was, was toward the Pacific part of the world. So I think that got started in the 60s. Uh, just with the population growth, the expanding markets, uh, economies of Asia. Uh, and so it was started in the 60s, and I think has really been a process that's continued through this day. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to the preparations in 1971 of President Nixon's historic trip to China in February 1972. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.